Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you live from Dakar, Senegal. I am sitting in a restaurant called Koh Tao, which is in the Yamadi section of the city. And I am sitting with a new friend that was introduced to me by a Glocal Citizens former guest, Mohammeda El Mahajir. She is the connector and I want to refer you back to her episode because she, like me, is a, a, a traveler and picks up so many new connections along the road. So shout out to Mohammeda. My guest is a Dakar native that is an attorney by training, but I'd say much more of a creative by current vocation. He was a participant in the Magnet Diaspora Exhibit, which was hosted during the 2002 Dakar Biennale by Yasin Arts Gallery. His first exhibition in New York City was in 2003, Lower East Side, hosted by Steve Cannon's Tribes Gallery. He designed the backdrop for the scene of the Afro-Pop Music Festival at Virginia University. And he was selected at the Diversity Project an event showcasing the works of 200 New York artists in 16 different galleries. The show was created by Danny Simmons and Rush Arts. He's also performed with Plexus at the St. Mark's Church for Human Rights Day, and he showed 10 paintings at the Off Dakar Biennale. And so that's, that's another aspect of the, the Biennale, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the episode. And most of the show was sold out. He's also showed at the State Black Archives Museum in Huntsville, Alabama and at the Kimka Gallery in Columbus, Ohio. He was also selected for the Black Madonna Millennium Exhibit, hosted at the Museum for Contemporary African and Diaspora Art, which is Mokata in Brooklyn. He's showed at, at Princeton University's Rockefeller Art Gallery. And in 2010, he was invited to select one artwork from the collection of the Brooklyn Academy of Music and a couple with his own, to pair during the African Rhythms American Echoes exhibit at the BAM Festival. He's currently writing a script about an African human experience of 50 years of arts, politics, and academics. Mr. Bara Johane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yes, 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 so let's get started. So Bara, tell us where you're from, where you are local, and what is your craft? Bara Johane is my name. I was born in Dakar, Senegal, the capital of Senegal. Five years before our country gained independence in 1960. So I grew up going you know, to school, elementary school in Dakar. Like I can say I'm part of the first generation of schoolboys, you know, trained after independence, like the first cohort yeah. of the, you know, yeah. the Senegalese educational system. It was like all free. Public school, mm-hmm. we had the best schools, and it was free. So students with poor grades would go to private school and pay. <laughs> right. Now it's the contrary. Exactly. Now, public schools are really struggling because I heard 
like institutions like the World Bank have been cutting, you know, subvention to education, pushing uh, an agenda for privatizing education. So as a result, now here in Senegal, like I'm so sad when I walk past my alma mater, when I went to high school, it's like so sad, so, so dirty. You, you, you see that, you know, this elite school has lost all this, you know, has lost it, you know, in the benefits of private schools, sure. business, you know. I grew up in Dakar, went to high school in Dakar, law school in Dakar. I was sworn in as a lawyer in Dakar and practiced. So the, what made me different with other lawyers, if I can say, I was the first one representing painters, musicians, filmmakers, you know, creative community. It was something unheard of by then. I remember when I, when I decided to represent Yusunru, like big Senegalese star, some of my colleagues were laughing at me, like, what, what, you, what can you do for this guy? Why are you losing your time with this guy? I said, okay, I, I like it. I, I see something in this guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> now this guy has like maybe 10, 15 lawyers. <laughs> right. And those lawyers will be, you know. So um, we did that, like the, the Morphe experience. Like Morphe was a painter, Senegalese painter, who died in 1984, aged 37 years old. Morphe was the youngest artist ever to have exhibited at the first World Negro Arts Festival organized in Dakar in 1966. He was 19 years old. You saw the, those, those pictures at the City Hall. Yes. Duke Ellington was here. Right. Uh, the music was here. Josephine Baker. And here was this 19 years old boy, you know, showing his painting among his teachers and masters and uh, who unfortunately passed away at an early age. And I was, thanks God, involved in the management of his estate. And, uh, you know, that's how, I think that was my first foray into curatorship, you know, and, and, collect, and collection, because not only did I buy tens and tens of paintings that he left behind when he died, but I made it my duty to, to show his work to the world. Even though this guy was, you know, he died anonymously, no one knew him, poor, sick, even went to mental institution in Dakar. So after I took charge of the, the estate in 1991, we did a memorable exhibition in Dakar until now people are talking about this exhibit. And you know why? Because before that, exhibits were always things of governments, the state, minister of culture, or foreign French institute, French alliance. And here is like a local lawyer, you know, a law office saying, hey, a law office can handle, should handle this kind of thing because there are some legal issues, you know, contracts, and so and so. And it was so successful. I mean, people showed up. 
I don't, re I, don't uh, I don't know if you remember three days or two days ago when we met the president of the Biennale and he said I taught him collecting art no, and he came to that show it was a fantastic experience I'm very proud of it because one can say as far as the history of art is concerned in Senegal as one, one of my friends said he said there was a pre-Morphe exhibit and a post-Morphe exhibit because that Morphe exhibit changed a lot of, you know, paradigms. Wow. are coming now. They say, we don't need governments. We don't need French or British institutes. We can do it ourselves. We can organize it and buy it. When we did that, two years later, I got a call from the Museum for African Art in New York asking me to loan some pieces of this artist to be shown at the 1993 in their hometown was when I organized that show, Morphe. So, and then it's been a journey with this artist because, you know, he got write-ups in art forums, magazine in New York, got shown at the, in New York at the Museum for African Art in Washington, D.C. at the World Bank headquarters. So, long journey and I'm still enjoying this journey because uh, sometimes, even though I, I keep it very, you know, I'm very much uh, aware of the dangers and inconvenience of throwing all this work into the art market. It's not about market, it's about preservation of a, of a cultural heritage. So uh, my dream with this collection is to really give it back all to the museum I'm dreaming to build. You know, because we need some this kind of things to like. You have Musée, Musée Picasso in, in Musée Van Gogh, uh, Musée Rodin. Um, uh, I want my Musée Morphe. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I like that. Okay. So we would say that your craft is uh, facilitating the craft of others. And of course, being a creative yourself. So let's talk a little bit about you. And you mentioned a little bit of why the where, like why or how you how you are here in Senegal. But I want to get a better understanding of why the where in terms of the place where you actually reside in Senegal. Well, I was born in Dakar, the capital. All my life, you know, time, I was shared between Dakar and New York, mm -hmm. New York City. Yeah. Even New York, I wouldn't say New York, but Harlem and Brooklyn. Sure. You know, those are the places that Dakar, Harlem, Brooklyn are the two places that I'm to spend my life. So why? To me, it's just natural because, uh, you know, my family was there. Uh, I had brothers and sisters living there. We were 
blessed, first of all, to have uh, generous parents who left us some, you know, some property located in that area. In a neighborhood called Le Plateau. Plateau was an exclusive French colonial neighborhood. For independence. I mean, independence, quote unquote, because some people say we're still struggling to be really independent. Free. Yes. Free. They say during colonization, it was a neighborhood where you can almost say black people were not allowed. It was a, you know, kind of a apartheid going on there. When anytime you saw a black person there, it was like, a, you know, a cleaner or a cook or, you know, so with time, some Senegalese started, you know, to make it a point together to get their piece of plateau there, you know. They were educated, civil servants, or, you know, successful local people, who consciously, maybe out of a sense of pride or defiance, said, we're gonna live in plateau, no matter what. And thanks God, my father was one of those, you know. So he fought to get his loan and, and bought this thing. He was a, you know, my father, he was, he was like a, what people call in America the founding fathers, like the first Africans that were raised in the 50s. Like, like the post, um, yeah. or yeah, the Renaissance. Yes, mm -hmm. and they started to talk about independence yeah. of Africa, Pan-Africanism. So my father was a, he was a member of the first political party, local political party in this country that started to fight gain independence. So being a founding member of the first political party in this country, you know, that led this country to independence. And what party was that? BDS, Bloc Democratic Senegalese, Democratic Bloc of Senegal. 1950, my father told me he sat at the elections as a representative of this party in 1951. Legislative elections, 1951, Senegal was not yet independent. You know, he, he became independent in 1960. So those, those, that, that decade or two decades before reaching independence, I mean, those are, I think, important historical times. And I'm very proud that my father was, you know, part of this movement and, um, and played his role. What was your father's craft aside from being in the political movement? He was a civil servant, but uh, his, his basic craft was uh, an accountant. Okay. He was an accountant and then he worked in banks and then got into politics. <laughs> and then became, you know, congressman and things oh, like okay. that. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Interesting. So what was your father's name? Tell us. Uh, my father's name is Masamba Sasum Johane, but he is called Mas Johane. And there is a street name for him. Plateau, yeah. you know, where all street names are French people, if you, if you notice, yes. you know, some, uh, somehow, even our leaders, some of our leaders are not ready to change the names of those streets. You know, you see many names. You don't even know who these people are. You just know that they are French people, colonialists. And uh, 
somehow one street was baptized like a French name was taken off to put my father's name and that was very symbolic you know I think in that area must be one of the first local Senegalese you know, who lived there yeah. and who took off a French yeah. name yeah. And, and, and the city the city it. hall renamed it after him that's great that's great nice there was a time where a pandemic hit Dakar in the 40s, I guess. Pest, how you say pest in, in English? Pest. So the French decided that all Africans should be segregated out of plateau. Wow. It, this happened here. So that's why the history of a neighborhood like Medina, the Medina was like everybody out, only there was a real system of apartheid. Wow. <laughs> People when don't you, remember. Don't, when don't. you said that, I was wondering, I was like, apartheid? Like, they really had it here? But I mean, it's everywhere. But it's yeah, this everywhere. is true. The, like, you know, they would not call it that name, but the practice was yeah. the same. You know, segregation, yes. discrimination. Yeah. That happened here, you know. Because even though Senegal is a French colony, was a French colony, a way to divide us was to decide People who live in Dakar, Rufisk is uh, like 30 minutes from Dakar, beautiful old city, colonial city. St. Louis, St. Louis in the north, and Gore Island. If you were from those four cities, you had the right to be a French citizen. Otherwise, you're a French subject. Wow. There were two categories, subject and citizen, in the same country. And those things, you know, we still feel those consequences even now. You know, those division. Hey, I'm from Dakar. You from from there? <laughs> so uh, the same way the French created, I mean, the colonial powers created the Gambia, a French-speaking, uh, an English-speaking country inside the Senegalese French-speaking country. Again, you know, divide and conquer. So, uh, Plateau, somehow my father managed, <laughs> you know, to get a piece of land in, to buy a house in Plateau just a year after independence. Like Senegal became independent in 1960, 1960, my father got this house in 1961. Say, wow, you know, wow. Bringing my family, you know, and that was a time where, of course, uh, Senegalese uh, were taking power, uh, they were getting empowered, and more and more French people were living back to France. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I grew up in this neighborhood, very mixed. You know, I could, you, I'll meet French people, Lebanese people, also their staff, their employees, coming immigrants from Guinea, from Mali, from Cape Verde. I remember there was many people from Cape Verde that back then in growing up in my neighborhood because Cape Verde was fighting for independence. It was occupied by the Portuguese. So there were many immigrants from Cape Verde, like exiles. So we grew, I grew up, I had the, I think to me, it was a blessing to be in such a diverse community, you know, like neighboring African countries, I grew up, you know, playing soccer, or going to the beach with kids from Guinea, from Mali, from Mauritania, from Bissau, from Cape Verde. And the funny thing was like, 
we, we always try to to speak the language of the other. Oh, that's nice. That's cool. So growing up, I I started talking, you know, speaking Portuguese. I learned Portuguese growing up because my friends from Cape Verde, Malinke, because my friend from you know Mali or Susu yeah. from Guinea. Yeah. Uh, each culture, I got like I could find my way or sure. tell them. <laughs> And we, I miss that now, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. You don't see it now. Like now, all the kids, they speak French mm -hmm. at, at home. Yeah. And I, I think it's terrible. Yeah, they're missing their mother tongues. Missing their mother tongue because uh, like the elite people here, when they go home, they speak French to their kids because you know, that's, that's a shame, but it's a reality. Now I want to ask you about your local speaks. You were just telling us about your growing up with all kinds of different nationalities and learning their different parts of language. So this is when we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is an integral part of your local vernacular and why you came to value it as, or value it as local speak. There is a proverb in Wolof that says, Jammu Dudoy. We'll say, Jammu Dudoy. Jam Dudoy. Jam Dudoy. Jam means, means peace. Say peace is never enough. Wow. Okay. 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 Tell us more. So if it's never enough, that means it's a work in progress. Work in yes. progress. It's not oh. just a pact that you sign. Oh, okay, this is peace. No, peace is an ongoing process, and it's never enough. Sure. It's never enough. You know. Sure. So, so it's a, a keep, a keep striving. Keep striving, keep building on it because you know can be it's fragile. Mm -hmm. you know? So don't don't just sleep on it and say, oh, I'm in peace. Mm -hmm. No, it is a daily challenge to keep it going. Mm -hmm. mm, I like that. Do do jam. Okay, jam do doi. Yeah. Jam Dudoy. Okay. I don't know if the translation is right, you know. But yeah, peace is never enough. Okay, very good. So tell us a little bit more about your experience transitioning back to Senegal. So you, you knew you were leaving, and what has it been like? And you were gone for many years. What, what was it like transitioning and now finding where you've landed? Because I'll give some context here. I've come and I've met Mr. Art World. He traverses with, you know, the, poli the policy makers as well as the artists and, and everything in between. So that's a lot of my curiosity about landing and then moving into this space full-heartedly. Mm. What was your plan and how have you implemented it? Coming back to Senegal, I found out that, you know, I gained a lot of experience and knowledge that I acquired in America. Because I've done things like being a teaching artist <laughs> in an elementary school. But I have, you know, I could not fathom doing that in Senegal. You know, I started painting, you know, the act of creating artworks while I was in New York. You know, before that, maybe I had a couple of drawings, but I was not really into it. But suddenly, you know, with the beginning of the 21st century, I, I had to satisfy my need to do more creation, you know, and I started painting, drawing, loved it. 
<laughs> and see people react to it to the point that, you know, I got my first show in New York before Senegal. New York people are the first people who ever, you know, who saw my work publicly exhibited in an art gallery. And uh, I have to mention, so among other experiences, you know, I have uh, worked for, for the United Nations Development Program, uh, headquartered in New York City, where I was a legal advisor. After that, I worked at 40 Acres and a Mule in Brooklyn with Spike Lee. That's very interesting too, because uh, I was in charge all of Spike Lee's private archives. You know, all that documents and pictures and paintings and whatever, uh, movie posters, vintage photography. I mean, all his art archives, so I was in charge of organizing it. And as a result, the company built a beautiful website because I had to do the, all that work for two years. I have taught sometimes as a lecturer at law school, at Brooklyn Law School. Oh, okay. Yeah, I gave a lecture about comparative constitutional law between, you know, the U.S. Constitution and the Senegalese Constitution. Or I had lectured and uh, done some uh, workshops about uh, conflict resolution with the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. So. Uh, my teaching experience is really exclusively a New York experience. I've never taught before in my life, you know, and I've taught children and low students in New York, you know. So it's very funny. And, uh, so maybe teaching is part of my craft, but I didn't know that. But I enjoyed, you know. The... Yeah, exactly. So when I come back, now my first thing was, okay, what do I bring back? I'm like, okay, I'm going to curate a great show even though I don't have like the museum infrastructure or the Biennale infrastructure, I was blessed to develop some really solid relationships and friendships with New York artists. So it was kind of easy to present my idea to show in Dakar, to, to do a big exhibition of between Senegalese artists and African artists living in New York and Jamaican artists, you know, and uh, diaspora. So the first thing I did, so when I came back, was to put that big exhibition of around 40 artists in Dakar, just after the opening of the, uh, the Museum for Black Civilization. Like the day after the opening of the museum, I opened my show and I called it Le Grenier de Rhythme. Le Grenier de Rhythme, say, you can call it like, uh, in English, I would say the, the Grenier is a mill. No, a mill where you keep rhythms. Okay? And it was about emigration, expatriation, and repatriation. Mm, full circle. Full circle. <laughs> so that was my reintroduction to my back to Senegal. And then since now, after all these years, I'm getting wiser. So I'm like, okay, I remember owning some land, some piece of land that I bought, I left back 30 years ago. That has gained a lot of value now. So my next thing would be like just to get into real estate. 
for my retirement years. <laughs> Well, that's a good plan. That's that's absolutely how so many Africans that return have a little bit of a retirement plan because they've invested in the land that hopefully appreciates, well, it all appreciates, but it's hopefully has been guarded enough that it's theirs. And so, you know, we had an interesting conversation, and this is kind of the law thing, about why your land is still yours versus in some cases that may not be the case. So tell us a little bit more about the French land law that is a vestige here? Uh, the, land, the land law here is kind of tricky, very complex, because there is not one unique rule that governs all lands. You know, there are different categories. So, of course, the strongest title is what we call the titre foncier. When you get that one, you cover it against anything, you know, because it's, it's protected by the Constitution. You know, no one can Excuse me, uh, with you. <laughs> but but is it possible that this could be that people can make counterfeit ones? Is it possible that people can make forgeries? Yeah, no, no, because it's it's a very strict. You know, like if you want to buy some land, this kind of land, if you want to buy it, first of all, got to happen in the presence of a notary. Okay, the notary. And then it has to be registered in the, in, the, in, the, in the fiscal administration books. And once it's registered there, no one can touch it. So that's the strongest title. Unfortunately, all, all lands don't have that same title. Like most of the land is owned. I mean owned, it's not owned. Most of the land, according to the law, most of the land belongs to the nation. But now the state is in charge of managing the land of the nation. And there are a lot of problems there because a lot of these lands end up in the hands of those, you know, politicians and foreign corporations buying huge amount of lands while it's not reciprocal. Like if we go to their countries to buy land, they will say, I oh, know, you, you're a foreigner, you cannot buy land. But here it's so open, right? Now we're talking about, we hear like Chinese, Turkish, Moroccan, Arab, like everybody, there's some kind of land grabbing process going on by the state. Okay, so the land is controlled by the state. And so I'm interested in, in how because the land in Ghana, and this might be an Anglophone thing versus a Francophone thing, the land in Ghana is owned by the people by tribe. So it's the chiefs that are the lead administrators of land in Ghana. And so, you know, when I, when I ask people here about their tribe or what have you, ethnicity, I feel like there's less ethnicity conversation here than maybe in another place and could it be potentially because of there not being that same level of kinship with the the owners of the land so tell me more about how you know your your chieftaincy fits into that conversation or if they do at all well uh to finish uh besides the, the land controlled by the state another another case that brings a lot of scandals are the land that is uh, attributed by mayors, like in the local communities. It's not really the tribes. We, we don't have that system here. You know, it's, it's, it's the... Yeah, I get it. 
So basically, it's all administered. It, all land is in the administration of the country, of the state. And so if you want some, you have to go for a grant or something like that. You go to the state or, you know, you go to the mayor in his locality. Normally, you know, what happens is like, okay, if the land belongs to the nation, suppose you have a program to develop some economy, they will give it to you and say, okay, if you create like X amount of jobs, X amount of economy in a time frame of two years, no, so some conditions, you keep the land. But the guys, they get the land, don't respect their commitments, and then start selling the land back and make billions. You know, so it's about rule of law, you know, yeah. And I guess that's the story everywhere, right? Is, and, yeah. and so which is... Especially in our ex-colonized Francophone countries. I, I, I think Anglophone countries that have been colonized by British have more leeway than Francophone because you can still feel the heavy hand of the French power under, under our administration. I don't think we, it's the same in Nigeria or Ghana or, or Rwanda, I don't know. I, I think it is in a different way, but definitely the French hold on Francophone countries is currency. So that they have locked your funds in their own coffers and, and decide this is their purse in so many ways. I think that is the huge difference between the ways of the economies. Okay, you can say that because uh, in school we used to be taught that like the French system was about assimilation. Yeah, and uh, the British system was about integration. And that, that may, might explain, you know, the difference between the two systems. But what is sure is like the ranking of the world's poorest countries, while the majority of the bottom lists are francophone African. We gotta exhale on that one. Just wow. breathe it away, just breathe it away and breathe in some new, fresh, fresh energy. So let's get into a little bit of your mindset. You told us about how you came to Dakar and you emerged yourself into Dakar. So I'm curious about what you would say is a mindset hack. So something that you do on a regular basis that gets you, it's a creative, innovative, something that you know of or something that you practice, something that you can imagine that is your mindset hack. Well, my mindset now is like share, give back. You know, we are a very young country. In this country, I'm like a patriarch. Yes. You yes, know, because yes, like yes. maybe 75% of the Senegalese people could be my children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because, you know, they're all less than 25, 30. Mm -hmm. right. And with all this education system crumbling now, you know, health system, culture, forget about it. You know, like the, the luck I had to be exposed to those different cultures. When I see the youth now, uh, they don't have it, you know. So I'm like, my age, what's, what's my responsibility? It's, it's the future, it's the generation. What can I do or build to inspire our youth, you know, growing, you know, and, and getting faith in them, in them and their future. I think that's, to me, it's like a mission. I, I owe it to my country because, as I said earlier, my whole education 
from elementary school to law school was free. I've never paid a dime, you know, to acquire the knowledge that I have that allowed me to be admitted to the New York Bar Association, you dig? Yeah. So I'm like, okay, now I got all this, time to go home, I got to give back, you know, through culture, through education, through whatever I can do that, that I can, you know, bring to the table. Yeah. So this yeah. is why recently my ongoing project, you know, is to pay homage to one of the greatest drummer in the entire universe. Okay. <laughs> His name is Dudu Njai Rose. Passed away five years ago, aged 80 something, you know. This guy has toured for decades with giants such as Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, uh, the Rolling Stones, Stevie Wonder, you name it. He's not honored in his own country. If you ask a, a young guy here, you know, in the street, who is Dudunjai Rose? No one knows. Yeah. So I think now it's time yeah. to show the greatness of this unique artist. And uh, it's our responsibility for us who knew him here and abroad you know, to realize that our people will gain a lot by researching the work and life of this person, of this great artist. So the project is about international symposium. I want to convene in Dakar the greatest Senegalese scholars in African and from the diaspora so we can, you know, go through his archives, through his music, through his legacy and build something. You know, I expect that uh, we maybe we can edit a collective book because many scholars will participate. Uh, I expect to produce a documentary film about the event. We're going to do an international festival of percussions. I want to invite drummers from not only the different regions and cultures of Senegal, but drummers from West Africa, East Africa, North Africa. I, I'm thinking of the diaspora, like I'm, ideally I would invite, you know, those Afro from Colombia or oh, Bol yeah. Bolivia or Brazil, you know, yes, because they have those tradition of drums because the origins is here. And uh, as a guests of honor, we're gonna invite Japan. Why Japan? Because the emperor of Japan had awarded a medal of excellence to these artists. So I wanna give back to Japan and say, you're gonna be the guest of honor of this event. You know, we are just on a planning phase. We started, you know, brainstorming great intellectuals and artists and researchers. You know, everybody is excited. So, uh, Thank you for spreading the word. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. this is going to be like uh, something very ex exceptional. Wonderful. And so we'll have a link to um, the artist. Just tell us his name again. Dudu Njai Rose. Dudu Njai Rose. Master drummer of Senegal. He's the one who performed in a, at the stadium the day when Senegal was declared independent in 1960. He did the show at the stadium. And uh, in 1981, 89, the same Dudunjai Rose was invited in France to perform for the celebration of the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. He did a magnificent performance. Yeah. Yeah. 
on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. So this is a guy whom uh, I admire a lot, I love a lot, and I'm like, it's our duty to do something about it. And thanks God, when I had the idea and the concept, all the people that I contacted reacted favorably. Yes. You know, they say, okay, let's do it, let's do it. So I'm very optimistic that something great is going to come from yeah. that. Yeah, there's no there's no way not to feel energetic or and lend. It's kind of what you said about sharing. So we're all at this place where we know there are people that we need to integrate into our lexicon, right? Like people's names. We have these names of, you know, European greats, you know, all of those things. But we need to re-embrace, I guess, and reintroduce a lot of our own prominent historical figures so that we can have that much more connection and, and um I don't want to say nationalistic, but just understanding that we are greatness. You know, I think that's where we miss each other quite a bit in Africa. It's about, uh, you know, we have to protect, river, promote our cultural heritage. You know, uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of in the contrary. If you consider Africa's contribution, culture, to civilization, you just have to be damn crazy to neglect it and, and look for another way, you know, right. because all we got, you know, you just need to, to research it. As uh, said one of my esteemed elder, Sheikh Ante Job, Sheikh Ante Job, who is a Senegalese historian and scientist, he said, arm yourself with knowledge. Arm yourself with no and knowledge of yourself, your past, your great history, yeah, so... En français? Ah, uh, madame. <laughs> Quel plaisir. <laughs> C'est un plaisir de discuter avec toi. Ça me ramène un peu sur uh, des idées, mes idées actuelles. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I wanted to say what he said in French. Armez-vous, cher Antediop, il a dit jeunesse africaine, armez-vous de savoir et de connaissances. <laughs> okay, so we know, I mean, because you're creative, I'm, there's so many things that you've mentioned that are things that you do. I think the lines between your professional life and your um, professional, uh, your professional life and your home life, your, your personal life often are merged. And so I typically ask to get to know my guests a little bit better about whether they are a reader, a watcher, or a listener in their time that is away from, you know, their productive endeavor. Well, no, not their productive endeavor. Away from what is quote-unquote work. And to share some of your favorite recent or over time reads, watches, or listens. Yes, recently, okay, I always go back to Sharanta Job. I mean, I've, I've, I've bought so many books. <laughs> it's, I mean, the same book. Yeah. I bought it in English on the street of Harlem, 125th Street. It's called The Origin, The African Origin of Civilization. Okay? But the original version in French, I just bought it two weeks ago in the street of Dakar. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Okay? It is called Nation Negre et Culture. That's that's the the title of the. So I, I was just going through it. And interestingly, most of the scholars that I have invited to join this project about Dudunjai Rose have written books. So now 
recently I've been getting oh, all their books. Yes, 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 you know, yes. like we are a group as of today of 17 African scholars. I guess 15 of us have read. I must be the only one with no book written. <laughs> no book yet. <laughs> no book yet. They're all authors. Yes. So okay. it's amazing. So now I've been reading, I'm trying, you know, to catch yes. up with their books. Sure. That's a lot of it. So, Will, I'll ask you some of those offline and you can add those to the show notes so we can add those for, for listeners. Yeah. Bara, yes. thank you so thank much, you. so Bara. much, so much. So before we, we sign off, can you leave us with some last thoughts um, on life, the Biennial, whatever you please. Tell us a little bit more to well, send us off. The Biennale would be more open to the people. You know, when I go, and I wish the Biennale got its own headquarters and give back this beautiful building to where it belongs, the justice. I was very confused when I go to that place as a lawyer who was sworn in in that building and was told that that building was about to crumble, that everybody should, you know, evacuate the building. That was 30 years ago. The building is still standing strong. Right. And now they're doing, you know, when I see the the, the new right letters, like ancient paradigms. Right, Did you right, see that? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so what Bart is talking about is where the 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 main pavilion for the Biennale is the ancient ancient paradigms. It's supposed to be imminent danger of crumbling. Right. Thirty years ago, right. still standing strong. Right. So I'm like, what happened? What's the plan behind? I still don't understand that. But yeah. it's kind of strange. Well, there's there. I mean, this is becoming the like I mentioned before the the art city of Africa. You know, in terms of being able to put this together, and I mean, just a rising and I mean, West Africa alone. You know, just bringing all of that into this place is so. I mean, so much. I'm I'm so grateful because you've given us such dense history about the country, about Dakar, the city. And then now placing the art in its context has been such a, a nice journey and in this conversation. And so for your, as a way to culminate by you saying, you know, hopefully we'll, the, the Biennale will get its own home. There's a lot of land, there are a lot of places. I mean, I say the old airport might be a great place where there's a lot of land and the views, because the city is quite flat, the views are, could be phenomenal, you know, in terms of building a structure where you have so many galleries and things like that. So that's my urban planning eye. Um, but but yes, Vara, thank you so much. Anything else you want to add to that? Such a honor to have you here. Please, I hope you come back soon. Very soon. Very soon. All right, Google citizens. This has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at www.glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, you know the drill. Go there, leave a review, share it with a friend. And check out the show notes as always. I have some great images that will probably end up in a blog post from the Biennale. And um, yeah, 
I love having these live interviews. I don't haven't, again, we're getting back from COVID, so I'm back on the road and I'm back making new connections. So again, until next time, I won't ramble. I'm just excited to have been here and to experience this. Bye for now. <laughs>